You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Well, let me start with a question, and you can open up your Bibles to Matthew 5. We're going to be in Matthew 5, 38 to 42, verses 38 to 42. Well, let me ask with a question, and we're going we're gonna to get to read the passage in just a little bit. How do you respond when you are wronged? Yeah, it's about that. <laughs> yep. How do you respond when someone sins against you, when someone insults you, when someone wrongs you? What do you do? Maybe you recall a time when you were wronged or hurt or offended. What was it like? How did you respond? What were some of the words that came out of your mouth, in your heart? When I think about being wronged, there's this uh, story from way, way back when I was a little kid. I think I was in the second grade. Uh, I was seven or eight, um, and we still lived back in Romania. Lived there until I was 12, but I still remember. Um, and we had this family come over. Uh, they were really good friends with our parents, and they had two kids as well. It was my brother and I. And we just started playing with the kids, but their kids were much older. Well, much older, three or four years older. So they had a boy and a girl, and the boy was about three or four years older than I was. So I was seven or eight. The boy was about 11 and 12. At that age, it makes a huge difference. And, and I don't know what happened, but that kid just, just picked on me the whole evening. And on my own turf, might I add. <laughs> and he picked on me the whole night. And uh, one of the things that he did, he hid my slipper, which uh, apparently I was very fond of. He hid my slipper the whole night. He did not want to tell me where he put it. And I just got so furious at a, at a point. And I just started punching him and kicking him. I just, I lost it. I just, you know, flew off the handle, just punching him. Now, I don't know if he just did, ch- chose not to retaliate. I'm sure he could have take, take, you know, taken me, but, but I just punching and, and screaming and and. We may expect retaliation from a second grader, right? Like a seven or eight-year-old. But some of us never matured in this area. Some of us have never outgrown those childish payback reactions to wrongdoing. And, and, and today's teaching from Jesus, from the Sermon on the Mount, and by the way, this is the fifth out of the sixth saying from chapter five, which all tie back to Jesus saying, I did not come to abolish the law, but to what? to fulfill it. And again, I'll make a side note. If you haven't heard the previous sermons, please go to our podcast and listen to them. They tie into to one another. So after he says that, that Jesus, you know, he says that I, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He proceeds to go through six different Old Testament passages pointing to a specific law. And by the way, he is not abolishing those laws. I'll say that again. But he is explaining, he is reinterpreting, giving their fuller meaning. And today's saying, the fifth one, has to do with how we respond to wrongdoing or when you've been sinned against or offended. Church, we are not going to believe what Jesus expects of us to do when we are wronged, offended, and sinned against. You would not believe what Jesus expects us to do in the face of evil. And even if you believe it, I guarantee you, you're not going to like it because I, I don't like it. Now let's read. Would you just stand with me? So Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. Five verses, 
But yeah, very challenging passage in the Bible. So let me just read Matthew 5, 30 to 42. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Let me just pray over our hearts. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for your sacrifice, Jesus. We thank you for the fact that you wrap your righteousness around us. And Lord God, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount and we, we see clearly how, how we fall short of your standards, we thank you. We thank you, Lord God, for, for the encouraging message of the gospel that you wrap your righteousness around us and that God sees us through that righteousness and, and we are made pure and holy through you. But Lord God, I ask that you would open our eyes to, to the helper, the Holy Spirit that you've placed in us, Lord God, that will enable us to live more and more in your standards. I, I ask that you would do a great work in our hearts, bear much fruit in us, Lord God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, I don't care who you are. You should find this radical and ridiculous behavior in the face of evil. And even as we just read the passage, without even getting into it, because it gets even tougher, more challenging when you get into it, we're so tempted to just check out, forget it, forget it. This is way too much. Let's just read another passage, a nicer one. So just as Jesus starts each one of these six sayings, he points us to an Old Testament law in the same way in our passage today. And the law that Jesus cites here is called the Lex Talionis. And it's found in the Old Testament, as I said, but it actually predates the Old Testament. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is the oldest law known to mankind. Even before the Mosaic law, this law was found in the Code of Hammurabi in the 18th century BC. And Lex Talionis basically says the punishment fits the crime. The punishment fits the crime. Now, we have three Old Testament passages where we find Lex Talionis. We are only going to look at one of them. You can look at the other two at home. Namely, we're going to look at Deuteronomy 19, at least to get ourselves familiarized with with this law. And this passage in Deuteronomy 19 has to do specifically with false witness, with lying, and specifically it has to do with accusing someone of a crime. Interesting. So let's say that you accuse someone of a crime and they actually, uh, and they actually didn't do it. Well, here it says, guess who's going to receive the punishment? You will. How interesting, right? Well, let's read it. Deuteronomy 19.21. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So essentially what would happen is, is this. If you're lying about someone committing a crime, if it were true, they would receive a severe punishment. Makes sense, right? But if you're lying about it, well, it's just fair that you would receive the punishment yourself. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? I'm thinking of last week's teaching, Right? Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. And how important it is to speak truth always. So that's Lax Talionis. The punishment fits the crime. Well, let me ask you this. 
do you think Lex Talionis is a good law? Do you think this is a good law? Yeah, I think so. I think it's a great law. There's nothing wrong with it. Wouldn't you say so? I mean, it, it, it's actually fair. It defines justice and we want justice, don't we? Something that we all crave at times, at least when it benefits us, right? And, and one of the most beautiful things about this law is that it prevents escalation. That's great. It prevents escalation. Now, escalation would be, you know, when someone punches you in the face and you get a black eye, you would retaliate and give them two black eyes, right? That would be escalation, right? If someone knocks out your tooth and then you knock out two of their teeth or three of their teeth, right? That's what's called escalation. And Lex Talionis, the punishment fits the crime, prevents exactly just that. I mean, just think about all the, the, the accidents that happen from escalation. You know, someone punches and then they, you murder them or something happens because you escalate, right? There's this escalation going on, right? It says that the punishment that you receive for wrongdoing should be exact and equal to the damages caused. By the time of Jesus, by the first century, very rarely, note this, was this actually carried out in a physical sense. It is good to know that this Lex Talionis ended up being more of a monetary punishment. Uh, so you would, you would have to pay what is called damages, right? Which is very similar to how society works today. You may get some jail time. Uh, you may get a fine for your wrongdoing, right? Generally speaking, uh, you don't take someone's eye for the damaged eye. That's not how we do it today. But you do pay for the damages. And that's how it was in Jesus's time as well. I think it's good to note that as well. Now, this is a good time in the sermon to answer this question. When it comes to following Jesus this way, by turning the other cheek, which is, by the way, elevating Lex Talionis to a ridiculous level, right? Which is Jesus holding his followers to a much higher standard. So let me ask you this. Does Jesus expect his disciples to be doormats? No. And what do I mean by that? Does Jesus expect us to just put ourselves in unwise situations to let people walk all over us? Probably not. What about self-defense? What about being invaded by a different country? See, this, this gets very interesting. And, and we, now at this point, we have a lot of questions, unanswered questions. The truth is that he's not saying that. That's not his heart. That's, that's not his point here, that, that we need to be doormats for everyone to walk all over us. Church, please hear me. That's not the appropriate application of this passage. He's not saying here, do not defend yourself, or please just let people walk all over you. And maybe this makes sense. You might say it like this. We must turn the other cheek and not a blind eye to evil. Does that make sense? We must turn the other cheek and not a blind eye to evil. Now think about this example for a moment. If you're a parent, what are you supposed to do if one of your kids pulls the other kid's hair all the time? I, just, I was watching the kids yesterday and, and Eli just, just decided to take a hammer, a little hammer. It was a toy hammer, but it was still pretty heavy. And just whacked Taya right over the head, like just as hard as he could. Screaming and, and tears and all that. And he did it again after 30 seconds. 
after all the discipline, right? I mean, there's only so much he can do to a, a year old, right? Now, what was I supposed to do? To just turn to Taya and say, baby, turn the other cheek. Let him hit you again and again and again. That's just what the Bible says. No. Or as a good parent, I'm, am I supposed to discipline Eli? Yeah, yeah, that's what good parenting is. So Jesus is not saying, you know, turn a blind eye to evil. I think we, we get that, right? We understand that. In fact, you can see this in Jesus' own life when he endured personal injustice. And we touched, this, touched a little bit on this a couple of weeks ago. When he uh, experienced personal harm, he suffered silently. He suffered silently. That's because he experienced personal injustice. But could you say accurately that Jesus turned a blind eye to evil? Of course not. Of course not. He is calling out evil everywhere he sees it. I mean, he's standing up for, just, for, for, for justice. He's flipping tables and cleansing the temple. We see this numerous times. And need I remind you that Jesus will return and he will judge every human being who's ever existed on this planet. And not an, not an evil thing will go unpunished. He will judge the righteous and the unrighteous alike. That is a for sure thing. So then how can we know whether a situation is turn the other cheek kind of a situation or a turning a blind eye to evil kind of a situation? How can we distinguish between the two? And I think a good distinction, there are probably many, but one really good one uh, is that there is a difference between your personal responsibility to uphold justice, to not turn a blind eye, and your positional responsibility to uphold justice. So personal and positional responsibility. There's a difference here. Now, you may be in one of those positions um, where you have, let's say, a business, and you try to be fair and just in all your dealings, and let's just say that you have a bad employee that keeps wronging people and he's embezzling money from your company, right? You can fire them, you know that? <laughs> you probably should fire them. You don't, you don't have to turn a blind eye and say, well, I'm supposed to turn the other cheek and let them drive my business into the ground. You can fire them. You can actually fire them. Even as a parent, which is a position of authority, right? You're responsible for upholding justice within your home. As a pastor, I'm supposed to, 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 to not let heresy rampant right in our church. There are certain things where God holds us accountable. But every one of these cases are positional responsibilities. It comes with the job. It comes with the territory. Does that make sense? Now, let me say this uh, really quickly too. We're not talking about a situation where as a citizen, or as a fellow human being, you see someone taking advantage of someone else and beating them up on the street. You're walking on the street and someone's just, you know. And just because you're not in a position of authority, you should just walk by and not do anything about it. We have a word for that. That's called being a coward, right? We all know that. This is not a situation where justice needs to be upheld, but a situation where you need to stop evil from happening. Very different, Right? That's totally different, a totally different situation that, than, than what we're talking about today in our passage. And to, to end this point, everyone needs to be ready to intervene or stop evil from happening if they see one. We'll end that point. 
I believe that the thrust of, of the passage today is this. Jesus in our passage today speaks of the difference between upholding justice and showing mercy. Upholding justice and showing mercy. I believe that's the thrust of the passage. In the four examples that he gives, and we're going to look at them in just a second, he's not talking about you being in a position of justice. He's not. But he's talking about you in your personal life. And we have to make this distinction. So again, in all four examples, just so we're clear, who's being slapped in the cheek? You are. I am. It's not about what if someone slaps your wife on the cheek? What if someone harms your kid? Different scenario. No, no. He's saying if someone hurts you personally. Just want to make that clear. Jesus is not holding us accountable for upholding justice in personal situations because we're not supposed to do that. But what he expects of us is something called what? Mercy. Hmm. Justice is, they get what they deserve. Mercy says they don't. They don't get what they deserve. What happens when we, we uphold justice ourselves, and, and we even have this saying, I'm taking justice into my own hands, right? We even have that saying. If you are the victim in a situation of wrongdoing, you are going to end up kicking and punching someone that made a joke and just hid your slipper like I did, which is the definition of escalation, just like the, you know, the older kid, and, and I just punched them and kicked them, right? And in my mind, the punishment fit the crime, eye for an eye and punches for the slippers, right? But the reality is that you are the most biased person to determine justice in a situation where you're the victim, and that's a problem. You might think you're going, you're giving them lex talionis, you might think you're giving them eye for an eye, but in fact, you're actually escalating the situation. That's why this is a, well, Lex Talionis originally was a good law. Someone said that, and I quote, hate multiplies hate in a descending spiral of violence. And we see exactly just that when we try to take justice into our own hands. We see hatred multiplying hatred. John Stott clarifies what Jesus is saying here in our passage. And I quote, his purpose, referring to Jesus' purpose in our, in our passage, his purpose was to forbid revenge, not encourage injustice, dishonesty, or vice. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to get at. He's not saying that we need to turn a blind eye. He's not saying that. He's not saying uh, we just need to let evil run rampant in the world. No, he's not saying that. So at this point, we need to ask the question, so if it's not your job to uphold justice, unless it actually is your job positionally, right? If it's not your job, whose job is it? The answer is it's God's job. It's God's job. One main point that we're making today is this, trust God to make things right. Are you doing that? Are you okay with that? Depends on the situation, right? Depends how big the hurt and the offense, right? That should be the appropriate response of a follower of Jesus, to trust God to make things right. Guess who is a perfect judge? 
Not you or me, but God is. Guess who understands the situation better than you do? God. Guess who makes better judgment calls? God. Romans 12, 19, this is what Apostle Paul says. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Very clear. Believe it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I think it's very clear. This verse in Romans is essentially a parallel to what Jesus is teaching in our passage today. Never avenge yourself. And this is something that should empower us. This is something that, something that should empower followers of Jesus to be able to extend supernatural kinds of mercy and forgiveness. Did you hear what I said? Because, because it, it just should. Because what forgiveness is saying, it's not that the other person will not be held accountable for their crime. No, we're not saying that. It's just choosing that they're not going to be on your hook, but on God's hook. Does that make sense? You are going to leave it in God's perfect judgment. And God is a better judge than you and I will ever be. And infinitely better than the combined efforts of the Supreme Court judges. But we also have to see this side of God. This is a very important part. Not only that God has wrath and judgment, and that he's perfectly and infinitely just, but God is also way more merciful than you and I. God is way more loving. God is way more patient. God is way more kind. In fact, Jesus is waiting to come back and return and judge the earth, like I said. And this is what Peter writes. This is what Peter writes. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's not slow to judge, as maybe some people, oh yeah, God's not going to, no, 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 let's just take justice into our own hands. He's slow. He's not slow, but he's patient because he wants people, he wants people, he's giving people an opportunity to repent, an opportunity to turn from their evil ways and trust in Christ and, and accept his forgiveness and new life that he's got for them. So you might say this, I mean, waiting until judgment day is a very, very long time. Really, I'm, I'm expected to just live with my broken heart for like 50 years. They really offended me, God. What if I'm in a situation where there needs to be immediate consequences and I'm not in a position to hold those people accountable? What do I do then? Legitimate question, right? So if you can't wait until judgment day, <laughs> The very next chapter, chapter 13, Paul writes this to the church. Again, I'm not writing the Bible. I didn't write it. God did. Romans 13.1 says, Let every person be subject to what? To the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Hmm. The reality is God will make everything right. Amen. Every wrong will be made right and every judgment will be perfect and made out by God himself. But in the meantime, God has instituted, believe it or not, the authority of government to hold people accountable here and now. So, so that, what should you do if a burglar breaks into your home? Should you make them dinner? You certainly can. We well, should probably call 911. 
It's just appropriate to do that, right? It's instituted by God. And believe it or not, the government acts as an extension of God's justice. Is the government perfect? I'm sorry. No, it's not. But imperfect and corrupt, as imperfect and corrupt as it is sometimes, there's still some justice being done. And that's the point. And so what are we going to do? Just a quick summary what we covered so far. Well, we have to understand that justice is God's job, ultimately. And then as an extension of that, we have the government that God instituted for immediate consequences. And I hope they can do a better and better job, right? And it might even be your job if you're in a position of being responsible for upholding justice. So if you're a cop, if you're whatever, I hope that you, you can do that. But in personal situations, again, in personal situations, God is saying your job is not justice. Your job is what? Show mercy. Here's what mercy means. And this is our main point for today. Mercy means that you lay down your rights and do what is right in the eyes of God. Lay down your rights and you do what is right in the eyes of God. Ooh, Oh, that hurts, doesn't it? Let me ask you this. When you read that first time, when, as you see it on the, on the screens, lay down your rights. Doesn't that seem like blasphemy? <laughs> and I would say it's not blasphemy according to scripture, but it may be blasphemy according to our political idolatry of the day. Because I hear so many American Christians making arguments. It's my right. Don't you know that we have to stand up for our rights? Sure, there's a part of that that is true, looking at it from a specific lens. Sure, we can have that conversation. Listen, you might be able to make that argument from the Constitution, but I'm just challenging us. Are we making that argument from the teachings of Jesus, though? And which, are, which is superseding which? Like Constitution or Christ? Which one comes first? For a follower of Jesus, like it or not, we are going to intentionally let down our rights, lay down our rights and focus on what is right in the eyes of God. That is our goal. That means that there are situations that we're going to look at four different, very challenging situations, four specific examples that Jesus gives. So that means that in some situations, it seems like we're, going to, we're called to choose to lose. It just seems like that. We're going to choose to lose so the name of our Father in heaven is glorified because that's the higher goal. This kind of practice is radical non-retaliation. It's silent suffering. And like I said, you're not going to believe it. And even if you believe it, you're not going to like it. This is a difficult kind of life to embody. And the goal is not fairness or to get even. The goal is mercy. And mercy seems incredibly unfair, doesn't it? And I think of all the times as a kid when I said, this is not fair. This is not fair. And the parents always follow with, well, life is not fair, buddy. <laughs> you know, the reality is that mercy is not fair at all, but mercy is exactly what Jesus expects of us. How are you doing so far? I think it's one, one, one thing to say, you know, for a kid to say, well, this is not fair. The problem is that we do that as adults too many, many times. Well, this is not fair, and, and we need to make it right. We need to stand up. Mercy doesn't make any sense, like I said, so we're going to lay down our rights and do what is right in the eyes of God because Jesus laid down his rights and died on a cross for us, and it was not fair by a long shot. The most unfair thing in the history of the universe, by the way. 
So here are the four examples that Jesus gives in our passage. They are micro examples, meaning they, they really, Jesus hits them very quickly. But I want to slow down and go through each one of them just for a few minutes, just a few minutes. We're allowed a few minutes to, to each one of them. And the first one is the most famous one, right? And it kind of goes like this. Have you been slapped? Turn the other cheek. Have you been slapped? Well, turn the other cheek. Verse 39. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Specifically, Jesus says, have you been slapped on the what? On the right cheek. Very important. On the right cheek. Interesting to note that nine out of 10 people, they say, uh, are right-handed. So what that means is that Jesus is talking about a backhand, right? Because you can only do that, right? If you're right, right cheek. And that's the picture that Jesus has given us here. Very, very important to know. Namely, that this is not primarily an act of violence, but primarily an act of what? Insult. Thank you. In ancient writings, we can find that a backhanded slap is twice as offensive as an open hand slap. So if you got slapped with an open hand, well, you can say, at least it didn't backhand me, right? <laughs> I know. And a very fitting example because I think we're all aware of it, would be the Oscars where Will Smith backhanded Chris Rock for making some not-so-nice comments about Will Smith's wife. Everyone's kind of aware of that, right? And by the way, there's an example. That's an example of escalation too. Whatever you think about that situation, there's so many comments and so many people just, you know, going to town on commenting, whatever. If Chris... I don't know if you think that Chris Rock deserved it or not. That's a totally different topic. What Will Smith did was a very shame, shameful thing. And some people were like, oh, the violence at the Oscars. Like, sure, okay, all right, okay, buddy, sure. But much more than that, it was the offense and insult towards Chris Rock by the backhanded slap. This is exactly what Jesus is highlighting in our passage. Not the violence, but the offense and the insult. And by the way, that doesn't mean that violence is not a sin. It's just that Jesus is highlighting the insult in this passage, just to be clear. So I'm not sure if you've ever been slapped in the face. But we still use this line, a backhanded comment. And this is where it comes from, because it's such an insult to be slapped with the backhand. So I'm not sure if you've been slapped in the face, but I'm sure that you've had someone speak evil of you. Same category. Same category of sin. Have you had someone gossip about you? Same category. Have you had, have you, did anyone ever slander you or your family? Same category of sin. And believe it or not, in those situations, what Jesus is calling us to do is endure and absorb the ridicule and the insult. And not to get back at them, not to speak evil of them, and not to start a new rumor or gossip about them, but to endure it and let your life speak for itself. That's what he's saying. How are you doing with that? Two major clarifications on this, because we need to. Because I know your mind is working really hard right now. I know mine was and is still. Because this is a very popular passage and it has been so misapplied in certain situations, certain ways. 
So again, I just want to be clear when we get, you know, that we get this. Jesus is not referring to violence here, but to the insult part of the backhand. Right? So, so what this means, and this is our first clarification, this is not a command to stay in an abusive relationship or situation. Notice that the example is not if someone is beating you to death, roll over and take it. It doesn't say that. So do not turn a blind eye and get yourself to safety, get your kids to safety. That's what Jesus would say. The second clarification, and this is a huge one, huge clarification, because some might use this passage for absolute pacifism. And there's never, and they would say, there's never a case where force should be used, not even in self-defense and, or protecting your family from harm and, and, and not even by a law enforcement officer or times of war, etc. If people want to make that argument from scripture, absolute pacifism, they are going to have to use other passages to make that argument because this passage will not help them make that, that argument. I'll just end it there. So that's the first example. If you've been slapped or insulted or offended, turn the other cheek and show mercy. Let's move to the next example. Have you been sued? Give more than they ask. Have you been sued? Give more than they ask. Verse 40. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. This doesn't seem right, does it? <laughs> like, ooh. Someone is taking you to court, and to be fair, maybe you owe them money or whatever. And what they're suing you for is, is the tunic, if you may have that translation, a.k.a. the shirt off your own back. Tunic was your regular day-to-day shirt, just so, we're, so we know. And Jesus says, give them your cloak as well. Cloak was the outer garment, which was much more valuable than your tunic, kind of like a jacket, a nice jacket. Now, now think about this. You go to the courtroom. And this is an absurd example because Jesus is trying to prove a point here. Absurd example. But you go to the courtroom and, and you show up pretty much in your underwear. And you would have your jacket in your hand and you would say, here you go. Take my jacket too. That's the picture that Jesus is giving here. That's pretty, yeah, it's pretty absurd. No doubt there's embarrassment. There. No doubt there's shame in that. What's the point Jesus is trying to make here? Ready for this? Go above and beyond even when you're wronged. Love your oppressors. Love your oppressors. Pray for them. Care for their soul like God does. Don't just hate them. Don't just desire to get even. Live more like Jesus does. That's the point. It's hard, isn't it? If you've taken something, if you've taken something that was not yours, if you've offended someone, maybe even accidentally, go above and beyond to repay back. That's what he's saying. Don't just eye for an eye. Don't just try to pay the minimum requirement back. Don't just pay them the exact sum back. Go above and beyond. A good example of this, actually, that I thought of, thought it was a good example, of this would be Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Remember that guy? This guy made a very good living defrauding people, defrauding people as a tax collector, taking, some, you know, taking money from people and scheming people out of their own savings. And Jesus spends time with him. Zacchaeus you know, is born again. He believes in Christ and he authentically repents. That's what the Bible says. 
At least that's what we see in the Bible. And this is what he says in Luke 19.8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And then check this out. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Fourfold. He gave back fourfold. You know what he did? Went above and beyond. Is this justice? Nope. What is it? It's mercy. You're giving them more than they deserve. And that's the point. That's the point. Let's continue with the third example. And the third example, I'll be honest with you, this is the one that I have, that I had most and I have most trouble grappling with. And it goes something like this. Have you been forced? Go the extra mile. Have you been forced? Go the extra mile. Verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now this phrase, the extra mile, it's widely used. We, we usually use it in hospitality. We'll say, you know, we'll say, oh, that hotel just they went, you know, above and beyond. They went the extra mile with us. And it was just, oh, we had a great experience, right? We, we, we say stuff like that. It's great to use it like that, but just so you know, it totally misses the scriptural intention in the heart of this passage here today. It totally misses it. Essentially, this word forced in the Greek, it was used specifically of Roman soldier, soldiers conscripting labor, recruiting you to be a temporary slave to carry their stuff and to do some whatever, whatever labor they wanted you to do. That's what it was, that word was made for that. And this was especially offensive if you were Jewish because we know that, you know, they were oppressed by the Romans. But, but at any given moment, you know, a Roman soldier could come up to you and recruit you to carry their stuff or some, some sort of, you know, labor. And it wasn't even because that they were, you know, the fact that they were super busy. No, it's, they were lazy and, and whatever. They were in a, a position of authority, I guess, right? And then, so if a Roman soldier would come up to you and they would say, hey, hey, you got to, you got to carry this from you. You got to do this, right? And this is what Jesus says here. If that happens to you, go the extra mile with them. Like what? You really? We see a great example of this uh, with Simon of Cyrene. Jesus is collapsing. Not sure if that name is familiar, but I'll explain. Jesus is collapsing under the heavy weight of the cross, right? And that's not because Jesus was weak. That's because he was just beaten to an inch of his life just before, just so we're clear. So they pull a random guy from the crowd, Simon the Cyrene, right, to help out with carrying the cross to the place of execution. And this is what Matthew 27, 32 says. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and, and here's our word. They compelled, they forced, they compelled this man to carry his cross. That's, that's our word. Simon the Cyrene hated the Romans, I'm sure. And he was probably humiliated when he was asked to do this, you know, the, the, do this task during a crucifixion. It was bloody. It was heavy. It was, it was difficult work. Church, ready for this? What does this mean for us? What Jesus is saying is that you should love even those that oppress you. But we've already said that in the last example, right? Yeah, but wait. That oppress you, especially governing authorities. Ouch. And your response is after the last two, three years of our life and how difficult the government made it, you want us to what? 
Church, this is the point Jesus is trying to make, so I'm not going to shy away from it. We said we're going to preach every verse. Just because I have or we have beef with the government. Well, let's understand the point better, shall we? The question we may have at this point, what if the government is corrupt? Well, did you know that the Roman government was super corrupt? Do you know that? That's, that's the context that Jesus is asking his disciples, like, that, that, this is where you do it? <laughs> Caesar literally killing Christians, persecution, mistreatment, overtaxation, keeping people in a position of oppression. Some of the things that they had on their resume. Jesus says this, that's a situation where I expect you as my followers to love your oppressors. But it's not right. But it's not fair. Mercy is not fair again. And Jesus, in a position of personal responsibility, not positional responsibility, says, show mercy. Huge disclaimer here, huge disclaimer. If the government asks you to do something sinful or forces you to go the mile, so to speak, in regards to something sinful, it is clear, I hope, that God comes first always. It should be clear that we are first citizens of his kingdom. Amen? Amen? Amen. And honoring God is our first priority. Actually, living for God is our only responsibility because we live out of that. So at that point, we stand up for God's principles and honor and glory, no matter what the government may do to us, but we can always do it in a loving and gracious way. A second disclaimer would be this. If you are in a position, again, positional responsibility, if you're in a position to fight a mandate or a law, Please do it because we don't turn a blind eye, right? But guess what we're called to do in our personal responsibility? We're going to go the extra mile over, above, right? To be obedient, respectful, and honoring, being a good, a stand-up citizen of the country that we're in. Filing your taxes, I don't know, and going above and beyond by filing them on time, I don't know. You can think of ways of being a good citizen, right? It's a tough one, isn't it? I know you have a lot of questions. I do too. And we can have more conversations on this. I'm open to, to hear what you're saying, but this principle is clear. Now, it may be hard to apply it at times and where we apply, where we don't apply it, right? But let's have more conversation about this. Let's move to the fourth example. And it goes something like this. Have anyone, has anyone begged, you, uh, begged anything from you? Give to the one in need. We have it in verse 42. Give to the one who asks you and, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. What we like to do as Christians, we like to take all of Jesus's clear teachings on taking care of the poor and on being generous. And we like to say, yeah, but they're probably just going to spend it, spend that money on beer and drugs and forget it. Yeah, but, you know, if they want to live that lifestyle, you know, they should get a job and they deserve it, right? Because they don't have a job and they don't want to have a job. And what Jesus says is this, if someone is someone begging you for lunch, or maybe they're begging you for a loan, because these are the two examples that Jesus gives, right? Jesus says, go ahead, give it to them. What is Jesus saying? I, I think... I think basically he's saying, be generous and not stingy. That's what he was trying to get at. Be generous and not stingy because our father is generous. 
Don't be desensitized to people's needs around you. We construct these narratives and, and these storylines that make us feel better for not being generous and for not taking care of the poor, right? We do it all the time. And I get it. I get it. Please listen to my heart. I get it. We can't be oblivious to other passages and principles from the word. We need to be good stewards of, a, of what God gives to us. Sure, we, can, we, just, we can't just give money blindly. We can't do that. I get it. And in some situations, we know for sure that we would be enabling people towards more sinful behavior. I get that. I understand. That's still legit. But the heart of the text here, the point that Jesus is trying to get at is this. Most of the time, we are more interested and invested and attached to our possessions down here and the things we have in our little made-up kingdoms down here than we are in Jesus, than we are in being generous. That's the point that he was trying to make. And what Jesus is saying is this, hey, your heart belongs to me. Your vested interests must be in heaven, not in earthly possessions. That's what he was getting at. Church, if we cannot value him and his kingdom most, Jesus says in Matthew 19, not me, Jesus, it will not belong to us. Yeah. Do you know what's interesting? Kind of over the top. What Jesus is saying in all of these four examples, and it's right at the beginning, verse 39, he's assuming that the person we're supposed to show mercy to is what? Is evil. That's what he says. That just makes it even harder. Like what? It's in verse 39. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And then he goes through the four examples. That's the assumption. So Jesus goes really far to help us see what's really in our hearts. He really, kind of like, remember that passage? Man, take your eye out if it makes you sin, right? He goes really far to prove a point, to to get at the heart of the matter. Like, what's in your heart, Christian? What is in your heart? And do we love him more than all of our precious, tiny, and petty kingdoms here on earth? And showing mercy rather than seeking justice is a kind of test to see what's really in here, in our hearts. Now, in closing, the question that we want to ask is, how can we show such ridiculous mercy? How? How is it even possible? And it's at this point that we realize we hate mercy when we have to show it. But we desperately need mercy ourselves. We desperately love mercy when we need it for ourselves. Someone said this, and I quote, Thanks to Jesus, we have to let go of our legalistic obsession with fairness. We are glad that Jesus was not fair with us. For if we were to have gotten what was coming to us, it would not have been good. Church, think about what we have coming to us if it wouldn't be for the cross of Jesus Christ. We have the wrath of God that we have to face. Boy. We have eternal punishment that we have to face. We have hell that we have to face. We have to somehow make up for all of our sins and garbage and the sins in our life offending the God of the universe. 
We have ultimate judgment that we have to face. And there's no way we would be able to face that punishment. There's no way. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus came to do. To pay for that punishment. Not to condemn the world, John 3.17 says, but that the world might be saved through him. See, that same word for slapping your cheek that we just looked at, the backhanded slap, Jesus actually experienced that. He faced that. When he was standing on trial the night before Good Friday, and they were spitting on him. It's actually the same word that the Bible uses in the Sermon on the Mount. Backhanded, slapping him in in a humiliating way, saying, prophesy to us who hit you. What an insult to the king of the universe. I think of Jesus when he was standing before the Jewish high priest and and the Jewish high priest is asking Jesus, why are you silent? Why are you suffering silently? He's probably really bugging him, you know? And Jesus is showing mercy against his accusers. He is showing mercy towards the people who are abusing him in the moment. Later, when he's being whipped literally to an inch of his life by the Roman soldiers, he's showing mercy towards those soldiers as well. And on the cross, he utters the line, Father, forgive them for they have no clue what they're doing. Peter, who was in the garden, his gut reaction, just like probably a lot of our reactions, is to take the sword out and just slice someone's ear off, right? You want to do that because it feels good. But later on, the same guy, Peter, writes to the church who was facing persecution. Check this out, and I want to read it to you. But I want you to know that this is the same guy, the same guy who chopped the ear off. But now the same guy, after a few years, he writes this to the persecuted church, 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to whom? To him who judges justly. Wow. I think it's safe to say that Peter was a different guy. He learned his lesson by this point. And he is like, man, guys, guys, God expects us to extend a supernatural kind of mercy because guess what? We have received that kind of mercy to a much higher degree from Jesus. Can't even compare. Jesus was not just enduring the suffering and the punishment and the penalty of the cross, showing mercy only on his accusers back then the Roman soldiers and the Jewish religious people. He did that so that he might show mercy to you and to me today. That by his wounds, we might be healed. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that we might be forgiven from our sins, that we might be made righteous, wrapped in Jesus' righteousness, that we might be raised to a new life with him. If you've never heard the gospel, That is the gospel. And if you haven't committed to Christ, I want to just welcome you. We baptize people here. And that's the first command of Jesus after you receive him. To to declare publicly, yes, I want to accept 
this gift of life and I want to give and I want to accept this forgiveness. I need it because I know I'm the problem and he's the only solution. We do that. Come and talk to me, Lucas Raz. Come and talk to us. One last thought. I really dislike the way Christians live Christianity these days. It's very carnal. We live as if the Holy Spirit doesn't even exist. We may say that the Holy Spirit lives in us. Oh yeah. The same power that rose Jesus from that lives inside of me. Oh yeah. But we certainly don't believe it or we don't act like it. So what do we do is what we do is we grieve and we quench him on a daily basis, the Holy Spirit. No wonder we live such paralyzed and anemic spiritual lives. We struggle with the same things. Nothing really changes. There's no change. No wonder when we hear a hard teaching like today's, we're like, that's impossible. Sure, it is. But not impossible when you're filled with the Holy Spirit and he leads your life. You know that that's the second half of the gospel? That's the other half of the gospel? That the Holy Spirit empowers us to live more in the high standards of God, that we don't do it on our own? We can't do it on our own. By this time, even the first line in Sermon on the Mount, I'm out. I'm so broken. Are you kidding me? I need help. Well, the Holy Spirit is the parakletos, that word in Greek, right? That, That is, he was sent for this specific reason so that we are enabled, that we would be enabled to live in God's high standards. Where is that in my life? Where is that in your life? So Christian, friend, brother, because I'm preaching this to myself first, let me just remind us that, that we have the most amazing helper and that he can enable us to live more and more like Jesus does and did but we need to surrender to his leading. We need to surrender to his leading. Would you stand with me? Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.